Chapter One of In the Line of Battle, edited by Walter Wood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One How Trooper Potts Won the V.C. on Burnt Hill. As part of the operations in Gallipoli, it was decided to bombard and attack a very strongly fortified Turkish position near Suvla Bay, a sector stretching from Hill 70 to Hill 112. The frontal attack was a desperate enterprise, as the Turks had dug themselves in up to the neck in two lines of trenches of exceptional strength. The attack was made on the afternoon of August 21, 1915, after a bombardment by battleships and heavy land batteries. It was in the course of this advance that the teller of this story, Trooper Frederick William Owen Potts, of the 1st Berkshire Yeomanry Territorial Force, was struck down and later performed the unparalleled act for which he was awarded the victoria cross for nearly fifty hours trooper potts remained under the turkish trenches with a severely wounded and helpless comrade although he could himself have returned to safety says the official record finally the trooper in the extraordinary manner which he now describes saved his comrade's life trooper potts is only twenty-two years old and is the first yeoman to win the most coveted of all distinctions. I saw a good deal of the Turks before we came to grips with them near Suvla Bay. I had gone out to Egypt with my regiment, the Berkshire Yeomanry, and for about four months we were doing garrison work and escort work for Turks who had been captured in Gallipoli and the Dardanelles and sent as prisoners of war to Egypt. Our place was not far from Cairo. I was greatly struck by the size and physique of the Turks. There were some very fine big men amongst them. In fact, I should think the average height was close on six feet. We had taken our horses out to Egypt with us, and all our work in that country was done with them. But as the weeks went by, and no call came to us for active service, we became disappointed, and got into the way of singing a song which the poet of the regiment had specially composed and of which the finish of every verse was the line, The men that nobody wants. This meaning that there was no use for us as cavalry in the fighting area. But when the four months had gone, the order suddenly came for us to go to Gallipoli. By that time we had got acclimatized, a point we appreciated later, as the heat was intense and the flies were very troublesome. From Alexandria we sailed in a transport, which occupied four days in reaching Gallipoli. Here we were transshipped to trawlers and barges, and immediately found ourselves in the thick of one of the most tremendous bombardments the world has ever known. Battleships were firing their big guns, which made a terrific noise, and there was other continual firing of every known sort. We were very lucky in our landing, because we escaped some of the heaviest of the gunfire. The Turks could see us, though we had no sight of them and whenever a cluster of us was spotted, a shell came crashing over. Thus we had our baptism of fire at the very start. We were in an extraordinarily difficult country, and whatever we needed in the way of food and drink we had to carry with us, even the water. Immense numbers of tins had been filled from the Nile and taken to Gallipoli in barges, and this was the water we used for drinking purposes, as well as water which was condensed from the sea, and kept in big tanks on the shore. Every drop of water we needed had to be fetched from the shore, and this work proved about the hardest and most dangerous of any we had to do after landing and taking up our position on a hill. 
several of our chaps were knocked over in this water-fetching work while we were at this place we were employed in making roads from suvla bay to anzac and hard work it was because the country was all rocks we had landed light without blankets or waterproofs so that we felt the intense cold of the nights very much we had a week of this sort of thing under fire all the time i think it was on a sunday we landed and a week later we heard that we were to take part in the attack on hill seventy or as we called it because of its appearance burnt hill there were immense quantities of a horrible sort of scrub on it and a great deal of this stuff had been fired and charred by gunfire i little knew then how close and long an acquaintance i was to make with the scrub on hill seventy it was about five o'clock in the evening when the great news came we were to be ready at seven and ready we were glad to be in it we did not know much but we understood that we were to take our places in some reserve trenches night comes quickly in those regions and when the day had gone we moved round to anzac marching along the roads which we had partially made we reached anzac at about two o'clock in the morning in pitch darkness we had a pick and two shovels to four men and took it in turn to carry them each man also carried two hundred rounds of ammunition so that we were pretty well laden when we reached anzac cove we moved in right under the cliffs which go sheer down to the sea but there is practically no tide so that the beach is safe the only way to reach the shore was to go in single file down a narrow twisting pathway we were on the beach till about two o'clock in the afternoon when we were ordered to be ready with our packs and we went up the cliff again in single file forming up when we reached the top then we went a mile or so along the road we had marched over the night before all part of the scheme of operations i take it then we cut across to our right and saw a plain called salt lake where we watched a division going into action under heavy shrapnel fire we were now in the thick of the awful country which i was to know so well the surface was all sand and shrubs, and the great peculiarity of the shrubs was that they were very much like our holly trees at home, though the leaves were not so big, but far more prickly. These shrubs were about three feet high, and they were everywhere, but they did not provide any real cover. There were also immense numbers of long creepers and grass, and a lot of dust and dirt. The heat was fearful so that you can easily understand how hard it was to get along when we were on the move these obstacles proved disastrous to many of our chaps when they got into the zone of fire for the shrapnel set the shrubs ablaze this meant that many a brave fellow who was hit during the fighting on hill seventy fell among the burning firs and was burnt to death where he lay as we were waiting for our turn we could see the other chaps picking their way through this burning stuff and charging on towards the turkish trenches when our own turn came the scrub was burning less fiercely and to some extent we were able to choose our way and avoid the blazing patches we ran whenever we got the chance making short rushes but when we got into the real zone of fire we never stopped until we were under the protection of chocolate hill for half an hour we rested at the foot of this hill from our position we could not see the Turks, who were entrenched over the top, but their snipers were out and bothering us a good deal. It was impossible to see these snipers, because they hid themselves most cunningly in the bushes, and had their faces and rifles painted the same colour as the surrounding objects. 
however we levelled up matters by sending out our own sniping parties we were on the move again as soon as we had got our breath back we still understood as we moved to the left of chocolate hill that we were going to occupy reserve trenches we went through a field of ripe wheat about two yards in front of me was a mate of mine reginald west i saw him struck in the thigh by a sniper's bullet which went in as big as a pea and came out the size of a five-shilling piece it was an explosive bullet one of many that were used against us by the turks under their german masters in a sense west was lucky because when he was struck down he fell right on the edge of a dugout and i heard one of the men shout roll over mate roll over you'll drop right in here and he did the rest of us went on though in the advance we lost a number of men some were killed outright some were killed by shells and bullets after they had fallen wounded and some had to lie where they had fallen and do the best they could we pushed ahead till we struck hill seventy again when we got to the reserve trenches i asked a chap how far away the turks were and he answered about a thousand yards but i don't think it was as much as that now we began to ascend hill seventy in short spurts halting from time to time we had fairly good cover because the scrub was not on fire though several parts had been burnt out during one of these halts we were ordered to fix bayonets we had found shelter in a bit of a gully and were pretty well mixed up with other regiments the borders dorsets and so on we first got the idea that we were going to charge from an officer near us but he was knocked out with a broken arm i believe before the charge came off he was just giving us the wheeze about the coming charge when a bullet struck him how did the charge begin well an officer shouted as far as i can recollect come on lads we'll give em beans that is not exactly according to drill books and regulations as i know them but it was enough it let the boys loose and they simply leaped forward and went for the turkish trenches it was not to be my good fortune to get into them however in fact i did not get very far after the order to charge was given i had gone perhaps twenty or thirty yards when i was knocked off my feet i knew i was hit i had a sort of burning sensation but whether i was hit in the act of jumping or whether i jumped because i was hit i do not know what i do know is that i went up in the air came down again and lay where i fell i knew that i had been shot at the top of the left thigh the bullet going clean through and just missing the artery and the groin by an eighth of an inch as the doctor told me later utterly helpless i lay there for about three-quarters of an hour while the boys rushed round me and scattered in the charge this happened about a quarter of a mile from the top of the hill i propped myself up on my arm and watched the boys charging i heard later from a man who was with me in hospital at malta he had been struck deaf and dumb for the time being amongst other things that the boys got into the turkish third trench and that the turks bolted he told me that when they reached this third trench there were only seventeen berkshire boys left to hold it the enemy seemed to get wind of this then it looked as if all the turkish army was going for the seventeen and they had no alternative but to clear out after the charge i saw this handful come back down the hill quite close to where i was lying i had fallen in a sort of little thicket a cluster of the awful scrub which was like holly but much worse i was thankful for it however because it gave me a bit of shelter and hid me from view 
I had been lying there about half an hour when I heard a noise near me and saw that a poor wounded chap, a trooper of the Berkshires, was crawling towards me. I recognized him as a fellow townsman. "'Is that you, Andrews?' I asked. He simply answered, "'Yes.' That was all he could get out. "'I'm jolly pleased you've come,' I said, and Andrews crawled as close as he could get, and we lay there, perfectly still, for about ten minutes. Andrews had been shot through the groin, a very dangerous wound, and he was suffering terribly and losing a great deal of blood. We had been together for a few minutes when another trooper, a stranger to me, crawled up to our hiding-place. He had a wound in the leg. We were so cramped for space under the thicket that Andrews had to shift as best he could to make room for the newcomer. That simple act of mercy saved his life, for the stranger had not been with us more than ten minutes when a bullet went through both his legs and mortally wounded him. He kept on crying for water, but we had not a drop amongst the three of us, and could not do anything to quench his awful thirst. That fearful afternoon passed slowly, with its grisling heat and constant fighting, and the night came quickly. The night hours brought us neither comfort nor security, for a full moon shone, making the countryside as light as day. The cold was intense. The stranger was practically unconscious and kept moving about, which made our position worse, because every time he moved the Turks banged at us. I was lying absolutely as flat as I could, with my face buried in the dirt, for the bullets were peppering the ground all around us, and one of them actually grazed my left ear. You can see the scar it has made just over the top. This wound covered my face with blood. Was I scared or frightened? I can honestly say that I was not. I had got beyond that stage, and almost as a matter of course I calmly noted the details of everything that happened. Throughout the whole of that unspeakable night this poor Bucks Husser chap hung on. He kept muttering, Water! Water! But we could not give him any. When the end came he simply lay down and died right away and his dead body stayed with us, for we could neither get away nor move him. During the whole of the next day we lay in our hiding-place, suffering indescribably. The sun, thirst, hunger, and our wounds all added to our pain. In our desperation we picked bits off the stalks of the shrubs, and tried to suck them, but we got no relief in that way. The whole of the day went somehow, with such slowness that it seemed as if it would never end. It was impossible to sleep, fighting was going on all the time, and the noise was terrific. We could not see anything of our boys, and we knew that it was impossible for any stretcher-bearers to get through to us, because we were a long way up the hill and no stretcher-bearers could venture out under such a terrible fire. Night came again at last, and Andrews and myself decided to shift, if it was humanly possible to do so because it was certain death from thirst and hunger to remain where we were, even if we escaped from bullets. So I began to move away by crawling, and Andrews followed as best he could. I would crawl a little way and wait till Andrews, poor fellow, could crawl up to me again. We wriggled like snakes, absolutely flat on the ground, and with our faces buried in the stifling dirt. We managed to wriggle about three hundred yards that night, as near as I can judge. Starting at about a quarter past six, as soon as the day was done, it was about three in the morning when we decided to rest, so that if we had really done three hundred yards 
we had crawled at the rate of only thirty-three yards an hour. A great number of rifles were lying about, weapons which had been cast aside in the charge, or had belonged to fallen soldiers. But most of them were quite out of working order, because they were clogged up with dust and dirt. I tried many of them, and at last found one that seemed to be in good working order, and, to my joy, I came across about fifty rounds of ammunition. Another serviceable rifle was found, so that Andrews and myself were filled with a new hope. "'We'll die like Britons at any rate,' said Andrews. "'We'll give a good account of ourselves before we go,' and I agreed with him. We were now some distance from the Turks, and I was terribly anxious to shoot at them, but Andrews was more cautious. "'If you fire they'll discover us, and we shall be done for,' he said. Then we shook hands fervently, because we both believed that this was the last of us. And I know that in thought we both went back to our very early days, and offered up our silent prayers to God. We had managed to crawl to a bit of shelter, which was given by some burnt-out scrub, and here we tried to snatch some sleep, for we were both worn out. We went to sleep, for the simple reason that we could not keep awake but I suddenly awoke because the cold was intense and I was nearly frozen. Luckily there were a lot of empty sandbags lying about, and I got two or three of these and put them on top of us, but they were really no protection from the bitter air. When the morning came we made a move, and for the first time we were able to get some water, but only by taking the water bottles from the poor chaps who had been knocked out. Then we crept back to our shelter, finding immense relief from drinking the water we had got, though it was quite warm and was, I fancy, from the Nile. We slept or tried to sleep there for the rest of that night, and stayed in the place till next morning. We must have been in what is called dead ground, a region which cannot be seen or touched by either side, and so it proved to be, for in the early morning there was a real battle, and the bullets were singing right over our heads. "'There's more lead flying about than there was yesterday,' said Andrews, and really some of the bullets were splashing quite close to us, within six feet, I think, though there were not many that came so near. Andrews was bleeding terribly. Every time he moved he bled, but I did the best I could for him with my iodine. I dressed him with mine, and he dressed me with his, and splendid stuff it is. Though we had nothing to eat, we did not really feel hungry now, we were past the eating stage. I was very lucky to have four cigarettes and some matches, and I risked a smoke, the sweetest I ever had in my life. Again we stuck the awful day through. I was terribly anxious to move and get out of it all at any cost, but still Andrews was very cautious. "'No, we won't try till it gets dark,' he said. I felt that he was right, and so we waited, as patiently as we could, for the night. Three or four yards from us was an inviting-looking bush, and we crawled towards it, thinking it would help us to get away and give us shelter. But at the end of our adventure we discovered that we had done no more than crawl to the bush, crawl round it, and get back to our original hiding-place. So we decided to give up the attempt to get away just then. When the third night on the hill came we were fairly desperate knowing that something would have to be done if we meant to live, and that certain death awaited us where we were. We had nothing to eat, and the only drink was the water, which was frightful stuff. I believe it was Nile water which had been brought. But though it was, we were thankful to have it. The water was warm because of the heat, and was about the colour of wine. 
we did not for a moment suppose that we should live to reach the british lines which we believed to be not far away but we risked everything on the effort and in the moonlight we began to wriggle off we had managed to get no more than half a dozen yards when andrews had to give it up i myself though i was the stronger and better of the two could scarcely crawl every moment was a torture and a misery because of the thorns that stuck into us from the horrible scrub we had kept the sandbags and with my help andrews managed to get them over his arms and up to his shoulders i fastened them with the pieces of string they have and these gave him a good deal of protection though the thorns got through and punished us cruelly i was picking them out of my hands for three weeks afterwards having crawled these half-dozen yards we gave up the attempt altogether and did not know what to do we could see a cluster of trees not far away about a hundred yards and there was one that looked fairly tall if we can get to that tree said andrews i could lie there if i had some water and perhaps you could strike some of our chaps and bring help i had little hope from such an effort as that then andrews unselfishly urged me to look after myself but of course i would not dream of leaving him i offered to carry him and i tried but i was far too weak what in the world was to be done how were we to get out of this deadly place there seemed no earthly hope of escape when literally like an inspiration we thought we saw a way out just near us was an ordinary entrenching shovel which had been dropped or had belonged to some poor chap who had fallen i can't say which but there it was i crawled up and got hold of it and before we quite knew what was happening andrews was resting on it and i was doing my best to drag him out of danger i cannot say whose idea this was but it is quite likely that andrews thought of it first he sat on the shovel as best he could he was not fastened to it with his legs crossed the wounded leg over the sound one and he put his hands back and clasped my wrists as i sat on the ground behind and hauled away at the handle several times he came off or the shovel fetched away and i soon saw that it would be impossible to get him away in this fashion when we began to move the turks opened fire on us but i hardly cared now about the risk of being shot and for the first time since i had been wounded i stood up and dragged desperately at the shovel with andrews on it i managed to get over half a dozen yards then i was forced to lie down and rest andrews needed a rest just as badly as i did for he was utterly shaken and suffered greatly we started again at about a quarter past six as soon as the night came and for more than three mortal hours we made this strange journey down the hillside and at last with real thankfulness we reached the bottom and came to a bit of a wood sweet beyond expression it was to feel that i could walk upright and that i was near the british lines this knowledge came to me suddenly when there rang through the night the command halt i obeyed glorious it was to hear that challenge in my native tongue after what we had gone through then this good english sentry said come up and be recognized not quite according to the regulation challenge but good enough and he had seen us quite clearly in the moonshine up i went and found myself face to face with the sentry whose rifle was presented ready for use and whose bayonet gleamed in the cold light what are you doing said the sentry are you burying the dead i saw that he was sentry over a trench and i went to the top of it and leaned over the parapet and said can you give me a hand 
"'What's up?' said the sentry, who did not seem to realise what had actually happened, and how could he, in such a strange affair. "'I've got a chap out here wounded,' I told him, "'and I've dragged him down the hill on a shovel.' The sentry seemed to understand like a flash. He walked up to the trench, and when I had made myself clear, three or four chaps bustled round and got a blanket, and I led them to the spot where I had left Andrews lying on the ground. We lifted him off the shovel, put him on the blanket, and carried him to the trench. These men were, I think, inniskilling fusiliers, and they did everything for us that human kindness could suggest. They gave me some rum and bully beef and biscuit, and it was about the most delightful meal I ever had in my life, because I was famishing and I was safe, with Andrews, after those dreadful hours on the hillside, which seemed as if they would never end. When we had rested and pulled round a bit, we were put on stretchers and carried to the nearest dressing-station. Afterwards we were sent to Malta, where Andrews is, I believe, still in hospital. The granting of the Victoria Cross for what I had done came as a complete surprise to me, because it never struck me that I had done more than any other British soldier would have done for a comrade. I never lost heart during the time I was lying on Hill 70. All the old things came clearly up in my mind, and many an old prayer was uttered, Andrews joining in. We never lost hope that some way out of our peril would be found, and it seemed as if our prayers had been answered by giving us this inspiration of the shovel. End of chapter 1